I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we're examining the role of the Constitution in an age of globalization. On October 24th, the United Nations Charter turned 70. And on September 17th, Justice Stephen Breyer came to the National Constitution Center to discuss his new book, The Court and the World. In the book and at the center, he asked us to consider the following question. Does international law have a place in the interpretation of the U.S. Constitution? We see this issue arise in Eighth Amendment cases, as it did this past June when Justice Breyer joined Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in calling for the end of the death penalty and citing international authority. It's also come up in cases about affirmative action, uh, LGBT rights, and other topics. Here, then, are the important questions before us. Should international agreements or other national constitutions and laws inform our understanding of the U.S. Constitution? And when are international agreements, treaties, or laws enforceable and binding within our borders? Joining me to discuss these questions are two of America's leading experts in international and constitutional law. Ona Hathaway is the Gerald and Bernice Latrobe Smith Professor of International Law and Director of the Center for Global Legal Challenges at Yale Law School. Michael Paulson, our returning champion, is Distinguished University Chair and Professor of Law at the University of St. Thomas School of Law. Michael was here in June at the National Constitution Center to discuss his great new book, The Constitution, an Introduction, co-authored by his son, Luke Paulson. Ona, Mike, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let's start with a word from Justice Breyer himself, who visited the National Constitution Center on Constitution Day, as I said, and he was absolutely superb. There were 4,000 school kids in the building, and Justice Breyer spoke to them uh, about topics including uh, the role of the Constitution in the world. In this world, the way to preserve our basically American values is to engage with what's happening elsewhere, to find out about it to understand what's going on outside our borders, to take it into account where relevant, to learn from it and reject it where you think it's not relevant or you think it is not the right way, but above all, to participate. Because if we do not participate in what's going on, it isn't as if it'll stop going on. It'll continue and people will deal with problems uh, that are uh, uh, international in scope, whether environment, health, security, and uh, commerce, dozens of things. They will, and just, our voice just won't be there. Uh, and uh, we'll have to live with the consequences. So of course, the better thing to do is participate. Take it into account. And that, I hope, will, after reading the 274 pages, if anyone does, I hope that they will then be con uh, convinced that, indeed, that is the better path to do the very thing that the critics, above all, want done. Great. All right, we've heard from Justice Breyer. Ona, let's start with you. As he put it in that clip, uh, courts should look to international law and use it in constitutional interpretation if they think it's relevant and not if they think it isn't. It, it, it sounds a little uh, either benign or, or opaque when, when phrased that way. What exactly is Justice Breyer saying, and how does he believe the judges are supposed to decide whether or not international law is or isn't relevant to the interpretation of the Constitution? 
Well, if we're talking about international law um, rather than foreign law, international law can be relevant in a couple of ways. Uh, one way in which international law might be relevant is if it is directly binding on the United States. Uh, and the U.S. Constitution has a supremacy clause which says that treaties are among the supreme law of the land. So a treaty the United States government has ratified is directly applicable as law that is binding within the United States. But there's another way in which it might be relevant, um, and this is really where more of the debate tends to center, and that is on international law that is not uh, either the United States has not ratified or that the United States has ratified, but that it is not considered what's called self-executing, that is, law that's directly binding uh, on the United States and that could be used as a source of a claim in U.S. courts. And uh, Justice Breyer advocates looking to international law of that second kind in some cases um, where it may be relevant. And uh, there are a couple of places where that may be. One is if the domestic law is itself vague, unclear. When you look at the statute, you really, uh, there are multiple different interpretations that one might adopt to that statute. And if you, no matter how hard you endeavor, there's still a range of different options for interpreting that. Uh, international law may help in those instances be a guide as to which of those vague versions of the statute uh, to adopt. This is sometimes referred to as the charming Betsy doctrine. Um, now, uh, and Justice Breyer uh, thinks that this is an appropriate way of interpreting uh, federal law. I would agree with him because it, there you're choosing between two versions of interpreting a statute, one that would put the United States in violation of international law, another that would not. Both of them, by definition, are available interpretations of the statute. Uh, so that's one of the ways in which international law might be incorporated into uh, into domestic law by courts. Um, it may more controversially be looked to in cases where the U.S. hasn't ratified the treaty. Um, and that is a case where you might look to international law or a treaty as an indication of what's called customary international law. Uh, that, uh, that's where I think we get into a little bit more of a sticky debate about what exactly the role of the courts is in looking to that form of law. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that great introduction. Um, Mike, I want to focus on, uh, we'll, we'll go through owner categories in a bit, but I want to focus on the citation of international practice in constitutional decisions involving the death penalty. In his, in his dissenting opinion in the Glossop case in June, Justice Breyer noted that many nations, 95 of the 193 members of the United Nations, have formally abolished the death penalty. Um, he said that in 2013, only 22 countries in the world carried out an execution and none in Europe or Central America. And um, why is that sort of citation controversial, and what are the arguments against it? Well, uh, it's controversial, Jeffrey, um, because fundamentally what's going on is the interpretation of provisions of the U.S. Constitution. And the meaning of the terms of the U.S. Constitution is a matter of U.S. constitutional law. It's a matter of the meaning the, the words had at the time they were adopted 
um, in the context of a specific time and place in a political community and as applied by that political community, United States of America. So the general objection that many raise to the to reliance on foreign law, I think citation of foreign law and just sort of looking at it for you know interesting comparison purposes is relatively innocuous. The problem that people identify is when you rely on foreign law or international law as a way of determining the meaning of U.S. constitutional law. In a sense, um, that is technically improper because the meaning of U.S. law is its own thing. It's its own sovereign entity. Now, specifically as concerns the death penalty, the, the form of the argument that I, I understand Justice Breyer to be making is that the term cruel and unusual punishments, our Eighth Amendment forbids the imposition of cruel and unusual punishments, involves looking at uh, com comparable practices. And over time, the courts have looked at whether a law is unusual or unusually cruel with reference to other contemporaneous practices. Now, there are two or three different ways you could legitimately interpret the cruel and unusual punishment clause. One is that it, it locks in place the original understanding of what would have been thought cruel and unusual at the time that the Eighth Amendment was adopted in 1791. That's a plausible view, and it's one more conservative view. Another would be that the meaning of cruel and unusual itself incorporates reference to existing contemporaneous norms so that it would be a prohibition on doing something that is radically different and radically more severe in terms of penal approach than what is widely accepted at the time. And then, you know, so that's possible evolving meaning. It's sort of a rare constitutional provision that maybe by its own terms uh, is dynamic in terms of its meaning. In either event, it becomes an interesting question as to whether a punishment is cruel and unusual in the American constitutional sense by looking to what other nations do. Uh, I can understand looking at it as sort of a relevant comparison, but not in terms of, well, other nations don't do this, so that makes it cruel and unusual as a matter of American constitutional law. I think, and I think most people would think that that's sort of an analytically flawed way of going about it, but that's the basic nature of the argument, is the, the problem is using foreign law as a way of pushing the meaning of the U.S. Constitution, when obviously the U.S. Constitution is its own thing. Thanks so much for that, Mike. Ona, let's hone in on Mike's uh, criticism of the invocation of international practice when it comes to the death penalty it wasn't only in the Glossop case that the court has done it. In Atkins in Virginia, uh, Justice Stevens referred to the world community in holding that executing mentally disabled people violates the Eighth Amendment. And in Roper versus Simmons, the court invoked international practice in striking down state laws that permitted the execution of juvenile offenders. Mike says that in figuring out what's cruel or unusual, uh, the U.S. should be the baseline. And uh, uh, do, you, do you agree or disagree and why? I think, first of all, we should be clear about where we agree. Um, we agree on the so-called uh, easy cases, which is the instance where the court simply looks to foreign or perhaps even international law as persuasive evidence 
um, in the same way that a court might look to a book or a law review article or other kinds of evidence that courts look to all the time in their decisions, not not suggesting that they're in any way bound by those books or law review articles, much as some of us who write them would like them to be, um, but instead that they're persuaded by them, that they find them as useful um, evidence to uh, inform their own thinking about an issue. And that is a vast majority, a vast majority of the time when the court is citing foreign and international law, that's what it's doing. Um, it's looking to it for ideas, for assistance in helping to think through the issue, um, not because it's suggesting that in some way it's binding or it requires a certain kind of reading of the Constitution. Um, and generally, that, um, that's what we're seeing in, in nearly every instance. Now, the death penalty is a, is a case where um, it can be a somewhat more stronger version, which is you occasionally see hints that the court, uh, in struggling with trying to figure out what does this term cruel and unusual punishment mean, is kind of grasping for, uh, for help in informing what is necessarily a quite vague uh, set of terms and looks, again, to a lot of different things, including state practice, including developing norms and ideas within the United States, but also occasionally makes reference to international practice. Um, and again, never suggesting that it's in any way binding, uh, but suggesting that it's informative at helping them figure out what these very vague terms might mean. Um, thanks. Thanks very much for that. Uh, Mike, the, you, you've talked about the death penalty and the question of what's cruel or unusual might be read to invite a kind of comparative inquiry, but the court, in, the court even more controversially uh, talked about international law in the Lawrence and Texas case, striking down laws uh, forbidding sodomy. Justice Kennedy relied on a 1957 British report um, about uh, evolving notions of LGBT rights. Uh, why, why is it that that sort of citation uh, is even more controversial than the death penalty citations? And and what do you think about the citation of international practice when it comes to LGBT rights? Uh, well, that's an excellent question. That's a good way of framing it. I, first, I want to express my agreement with Una. That we, there's a lot of common ground here in terms of our understanding that it, you know, there's nothing particularly problematic about citing and discussing what other nations do the same way you'd discuss a really interesting law review article. The only problem becomes when it is somehow used as having uh, probative value in terms of understanding U.S. constitutional norms. Um, unlike the death penalty cases where the cruel and unusual punishment clause might be thought to entail some sort of question of what, are, what is the relevant background norm in terms of comparable practices. Um, in, in, the, in other areas of constitutional law where you're interpreting a U.S. constitutional text, um, the meaning should focus on the U.S. constitutional text. Now, particularly problematic in the case you referred to, Lawrence versus Texas, is that uh, Justice Kennedy and the majority in that opinion in finding a constitutional right to same-sex 
sexual relationships. That's the case from 2003. It wasn't until 2013 and then again in 2015 that the court extended that to same-sex marriage. The earlier cases had to do with same-sex relationships. Um, in that situation, the court found a constitutional right in the U.S., even though there was really no text of the Constitution that supported it. They based their opinion on uh, the due process of law clause, which really does not have a substantive component. Courts have used it in part as a font of judicial activism in the past. And that was the provision on which Justice Kennedy relied. Now, so when he's citing foreign practices and foreign court decisions, it's sort of a part of a general gestalt feeling of his as to what he thinks the right answer should be, just sort of the right answer as a matter of general policy. It's, in some ways, it's a hard illustration because it's one where the court really wasn't in the first place doing a particularly rigorous job of interpreting a U.S. constitutional text. It was sort of looking to its own subjective notions of justice. And if you do that, then really the world's the limit in terms of what you can look at in terms of thinking about what goes into your conception of justice. Uh, but it is a little different problem from the one in terms of interpreting the cruel and unusual punishments clause. Well, t t tell us about your thoughts about citing international practice when it comes to LGBT rights. We've seen from the European Court of Justice recently that Europe and America have very different conceptions of privacy when it comes to electronic data, with the European Court recognizing a right to be forgotten rooted in dignitary notions and America being more focused on liberty. In, in, in what sense do you believe that European views about privacy or liberty can inform uh, American courts as they think about how the U.S. Constitution protects LGBT rights? Well, I think that it's actually a very interesting example because I think that uh, European views on privacy um, versus freedom of speech is actually one of the places where there's a clear difference of opinion about uh, what the right balance is between those rights. Um, at least thus far, the U.S. Um, has adopted a much stronger set of protections for freedom of speech, and that's been true in a variety of contexts, not just vis-a-vis uh, -vis privacy, but uh, there have been earlier cases that have challenged, for instance, the right uh, to um, put Nazi propaganda on uh, Yahoo, and the European courts are uh, very skeptical of that and want to strike it down. And of course, under U.S. views of freedom of speech, that's that's protected speech. And so this is one area where my where I think the court would rightly reject a reference to foreign and international law. Um, my expectation, if it was brought to the court, you know, this is not an issue that's pending before the court or likely to come anytime soon, but uh, if it were to come to the court, this is a kind of case where even Justice Breyer, I expect, would say, look, this is one place where our vision of what the appropriate balance is between rights is just different from the appropriate balance between rights uh, that Europeans hold. And therefore, this is not going to be a case where we're going to look to international foreign law, um, except likely as a contrasting point. Um, so it, the important thing to remember is that courts don't 
look, don't see themselves as bound by foreign and international law in these instances. It's really they're looking to for cases to help inform areas where there's a great deal of uncertainty. But where there isn't uncertainty, you don't see the court similarly, similarly looking to international or foreign law uh, for guidance because they don't need it uh, in the same way or they recognize it's inapplicable. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Mike, you don't like the uh, Lawrence and Texas decision on its own, even without the international citations. But uh, those who oppose the citation of international law go further and say that um, its citation thwarts American popular sovereignty, that basically it's we the people of the United States who made the Constitution and to import international values into the construction of vague phrases like liberty is somehow an offense against uh, popular sovereignty. Tell us more about that argument. Well, <clears throat> without embracing that specific argument, I think the, the easiest way to think of it is that the citation of foreign law or elaborate discussion of foreign law and foreign practices in the course of interpreting U.S. law is, while not something that's forbidden, is very much a distraction. Right. Um, if you are spending your effort not seeking to ascertain the meaning of the U.S. constitutional provisions, but literally wandering around the world asking what other countries do, um, you're, you're, you're kind of missing the core of the point. The core point in any time you're interpreting the U.S. Constitution is the meaning those words would have had in the context in which they were adopted by the political community that adopted them. Now, that relevant political community is the United States. It's the United States Constitution. And so I very much understand the view that uh, interpreting foreign law in a way that impacts your interpretation of American law is, is kind of looking outside the sovereign and, uh, in, in that sense, an, an impairment of U.S. sovereignty. You know, the Constitution was a document ostensibly adopted by we the people. And the relevant we, the people, is the people of the United States of America for purposes of adopting the Constitution, not the peoples of various other countries. Respect them as we might, interested in what they do, though we may be. Um, it is a very, very limited relevance in interpreting U.S. law. So I think the real problem, when you get right down to it, of citing and discussing at great length foreign law when you're interpreting U.S. law, is that it kind of produces bad judicial habits, right? To the idea that uh, that you'd be looking around the world and sort of picking and choosing what is of most interest to you. Um, the essential problem with the Lawrence versus Texas decision is not necessarily the substance of the rights that they were creating or where they were looking to create them. It was, it was mostly that it was creating rights that did not have a basis in the U.S. constitutional text structure or history at all. And this goes to a much more fundamental point about constitutional interpretation. When you're interpreting the Constitution, are you sort of generally looking for what you think is the best policy? Um, or, I mean, that's sort of the more living Constitution, expansive constitutional interpretation point. Or on the other hand, are you looking to, you know, what is the meaning of the words of the Constitution? And if the Constitution doesn't supply a rule, should you just defer to the political choices of the people? And that's the more judicial restrainedest, 
the more, you know, the text is the text and the Constitution means what it says, point of view. Uh, thanks so much for that. Ona, uh, Mike has basically said that the citation of international practice for the Constitution um, increases judicial discretion, and he's uh, amplifying an argument that Chief Justice John Roberts has made. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts has referred to the practice of citing foreign precedent uh, during his confirmation hearings. He said it was like looking out over a crowd and picking out your friends. What is the response to this idea that when you're interpreting vague U.S. provisions and you can roam over the entire world, uh, it basically allows judges to make up rights rather than uh, uh, interpreting ones that are in the Constitution itself? Let's remember that the cases in which this happens are cases where the text itself is not perfectly clear. Uh, and when we're talking about cases that have arrived in the Supreme Court, uh, in nearly every case, there's been a circuit split, which means that the federal courts of appeals have looked at this language and come to different conclusions. So by definition, uh, these are cases where there's uncertainty and lack of clarity almost, uh, almost in every case in the text itself. And rarely, moreover, do other sort of more uh, the legislative history, other kinds of sources often don't give perfect guidance either. And there's there's an own set of debates around the appropriateness of looking to those sources as well. And so these are cases where uh, the language, if it were clear, there wouldn't be a disagreement um, and there wouldn't be a need for the court to weigh in. Um, so these are instances where there is discretion being exercised, um, no matter what. There's a there's an interpretive effort to try and figure out what this law says, but it's it's law that is by definition not particularly clear. Uh, and so the question is then, what is the, what is a judge going to look to um, as a source to help inform his decision making? And among the many things that he may look to, again, foreign and international are only among the very few things that he might look to, he or she might look to, uh, is, inter is this international law. And I would add that, moreover, the, the founders at the time that they're writing the Constitution were very keenly aware of, of how the United States would be viewed in the world. Uh, many of them spent significant amounts of time abroad. In fact, the fledgling nation was desperately trying to uh, get creditors to provide money and were intensely interested in being viewed in a positive light by the international community. They didn't imagine sealing off the United States from the world community. They imagined creating a state that was going to be a part of the world. Um, in fact, early in the constitutional history, the citation of international foreign law was quite common. Uh, most notably, of course, British law, since that was law that we ourselves uh, derived our own constitutional tradition from, or many of the principles of our legal tradition from. Uh, but, uh, but so the, the citation of international law has been a part of our practice for a very, very long time, um, and was an expectation that we wouldn't seal ourselves off from the world when we're trying to understand the meaning of our own legal principles. Again, not overriding the clear text ever, um, but uh, in cases where there's room for discretion to be exercised and where a judge can't get away from that discretion, looking to things like what is the binding international law, what are the principles that are allies um, and other countries that have similar constitutional traditions and, uh, and values that we have and have struggled with the same kinds of problems, how have they tried to solve these problems? Not because we are bound by it, but because 
these are smart people struggling with similar problems around the world, and why shouldn't we look to see how they've thought these problems through on the thought that that could potentially be helpful to us, not binding, but informative. Great. Many thanks for that. Mike Ona has thrown down the originalist gauntlet and said that the founders themselves consulted international practice. Uh, the Declaration of Independence famously talks about a decent respect for the opinions of mankind. What is your response to the claim that not only uh, would the founders have opposed the citation of international law, they actually embraced it themselves? They did sometimes, but they didn't in others. They, in terms of understanding the common law, Right, sort of the general law that was applicable in most states. Um, of course, at the beginning, they would look to English precedents because we were a common law nation and, and inherited, in a sense, that common law tradition. But in terms of the distinctively American legal enactments, statutes, treaties, written texts, they understood the interpretation and the meaning of the written text to be a function of the political community that created it, the United States. Uh, in terms of political principles and aspirations, of course, you know, when Thomas Jefferson is writing the Declaration of Independence, we are appealing to the views of the, of the world community, right? We're appealing to the de you know decent respect for the opinions of mankind. And even today in the U.S., in many of its policy pronouncements, will obviously look to uh, international consequences and matters of world and global policy. But that's a far different thing from saying that the meaning of U.S. law in any meaningful way turns on the meaning of foreign law. In many ways, it's just a category mistake. Now, I agree with a lot of what Una said. Um, there, there's a problem when you begin talking about the ostensible vagueness of constitutional provisions and that there's discretion that inheres in any judicial decision, because that tends to ratchet up the meaning of the Constitution to this high level of abstraction where you say, well, we're not really sure that the words have a definite meaning. People sometimes disagree, and because there's a range of disagreement, we are now free to roam the world at large. Uh, picking and choosing from what we think might be our most favored interpretation as a matter of policy. And the more you do that, the further away you get from the original meaning of the text and the more you seek to exploit and leverage the ostensible vagueness or generality of some of the Constitution's provisions, the further and further you get away from the meaning of the Constitution itself, and the more and more the judiciary is engaged in uh, the making of general policy. The, the Constitution's structure of separation of powers and limited government seems to supply what is the appropriate default rule in the case of constitutional uh, ambiguity. And that is where the Constitution doesn't specify a clear rule of law. It leaves to the people, to the legislative process, to the political process, the freedom to govern themselves. So I, I, I would resist or be very cautious about the notion of taking the, the purported vagueness or generality of some of the Constitution's terms and using that as a warrant to go in in John Roberts' words, uh, looking around the world, looking over the, uh, looking through the crowd to uh, to see to see where your friends are, and using that as a basis for um, essentially changing 
or revising the meaning of the Constitution. Great. Uh, on a last word to you on this constitutional question, Mike says it's a category error to assume that all invocations of international law are the same. It's fine to construe the meaning of treaties when a case turns on the construction of a treaty, but it's not appropriate to invoke international practice when trying to figure out the meaning of the U.S. Constitution. What is the response? Well, I think that that suggests that there is some kind of meaning of many of these terms that that if the judges just thought hard enough, they'd really understand it properly. And that when they're looking to foreign international law, they're somehow straying from the true meaning. But the truth is that these are cases where the true meaning is not just simply not apparent. That's why the case is in the Supreme Court. Uh, And if the meaning was uh, readily apparent, uh, then that would have been interpreted uh, by the lower federal courts and it wouldn't have even landed in the Supreme Court. So we're already dealing with cases where uh, the true meaning is what's the issue. It's not clear um, what the true meaning is. And there are, again, many kinds of resources that the court will marshal in trying to sort that out. Uh, and it doesn't always turn to international foreign law, um, but on occasion where it determines that that's an appropriate source where other courts have struggled with the problem, it looks to that. Um, and just to return for a moment to the, to the um, vision of the Constitution of the Founders, um, Chief Justice Marshall himself uh, made precisely this point in the Charming, Charming Betsy decision. He in fact, went a step further. Uh, He says an act of Congress ought never to be construed to violate the law of nations if any other possible construction remains. So the vision from the get-go was that international law was going to be used as a source of information that the court would draw on um, in interpreting statutes and interpreting Uh, in some cases, constitutional provisions where those constitutional provisions were not on their face uh, manifestly clear. Again, not in every case, but in cases where the judge that to be appropriate. And yes, it does mean that judges are exercising their judgment, uh, but that is, after all, their job. Uh, And uh, and to suggest that they can somehow mechanistically uh, find what the true meaning of the law in some other way is is just simply uh, not true. Great. Many thanks for that uh, vigorous exchange. Let us turn uh, now to the question of when international law has the force of U.S. law. Mike, uh, can you tell us about the court's decision in the Medellin and Texas case? What does it mean for a treaty to be self-executing? How do we know when a treaty is self-executing and when Congress has to pass a law to implement it? And what's the basic controversy here? Oh, oh Jeffrey, in, where in, Just in about, three minute, in about three minutes or less. <laughs> I, what's the, well, why are people uh, concerned about this issue? Well, I think there there's this confusion about what is what is international law and what is its status as U.S. law. Okay, there's this thing called international law, which consists of international agreements, some of which we're parties to, and norms of customary international law that basically correspond to practices. There are all these world bodies. There's this world international law. And I think a common misconception that some people have is because this is international law, the law of the world, that it somehow trumps the laws of any nation. And actually, if you're thinking at it 
about it from the perspective of international law, evaluate it on the international law plane, you might say this nation's practices violate this principle of international law. But if you're thinking about it from the perspective of U.S. constitutional law, you're, you're forced to ask a little different question. And that is, what is the status of international law as a matter of U.S. constitutional law. And Una introduced this a little bit. The Supremacy Clause of the U.S. Constitution says, this Constitution and the statutes of the United States and treaties made by the United States are the supreme law of the land. And the Supremacy Clause of Article Six of the Constitution establishes the supremacy of U.S. law. Now, some features of U.S. law incorporate international law principles. You know, treaties of the United States are part of U.S. law. But in general, if you have a, a broad principle of international law, and if it were to be in conflict with something in the U.S. Constitution, uh, our, 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 our Bill of Rights, our specification of government's powers, powers of Congress, powers of the president, as a matter of U.S. law, you would have to say that U.S. officials are bound by the Constitution to enforce U.S. law in preference to international law in the situations where they conflict. To, 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 to put a sort of a punchy point on it, if international law commands one thing and the U.S. Constitution commands something else or gives a different set of powers... Precisely to the extent of the conflict, you'd have to say that international law is, for the U.S., unconstitutional, and that U.S. officials have to apply the Constitution rather than international law. Now, they don't always conflict. There are many instances where international law is completely consistent with U.S. law and has even been made part of U.S. law either by treaty um, or by a congressional act carrying into execution a treaty, and there are all sorts of fascinating and rich constitutional questions about how those powers play out. So there's no necessary conflict between international law and U.S. law, but the fundamental point is that the status of international law as a matter of U.S. law is a question of U.S. constitutional law that must be viewed through the prism of the U.S. Constitution and not primarily through the prism of international law. I know that's a mouthful. But the short of it is the U.S. Constitution for the U.S. trumps anything contrary to it in international law. Ona, do you agree or disagree with that very clear last statement about the U.S. Constitution law trumping international law? And how does that relate to the controversy about whether or not treaties should be considered self-executing? So I largely agree with that. I think that um, we make reference first and foremost to the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution tells us to look to international law when it's applicable. Um, that is, when there's an international treaty that's binding on the United States, um, that is regarded as a source of law that courts can apply. Now, the self-executing, non-self-executing divide is unfortunately a complicated one, but the basic idea is this. The basic idea is that when international, when the United States ratifies a treaty, um, it either becomes a source of international law, a source of law that courts can refer to um, directly, um, or it doesn't. Um, if it does, then that's called a self-executing treaty. That means that the courts can look straight to the treaty and say, this is a source of binding law that I should apply. 
If it's non-self-executing, that means that the courts uh, can only look to it as persuasive evidence. It's not binding as a matter of U.S. domestic law. It can't be a source of claims unless and until the U.S. Congress uh, passes a statute um, putting it into effect. Now, and it's further complicated by the fact that there can be self-executing and non-self-executing provisions within the same treaty. Um, but that's the basic idea. Um, and so when a treaty is um, self-executing, that means that it's effectively the same as a federal statute. Um, that means that uh, if it is later in time than a federal statute, it trumps that earlier in time federal statute. If there's a later in time federal statute, that trumps the earlier in time treaty. Um, and that neither one, neither a federal statute nor a treaty, can ever trump the Constitution as a matter of U.S. law. Um, so that hierarchy is pretty clear um, and well accepted, and I think there are very few who would disagree with that. Great. Well, Mike, did, I think you have the last word on this uh, question of the force of international law as part of U.S. law. Do you agree or disagree with any of that? And why don't you close by telling us whether there's a division on the U.S. Supreme Court today about whether or not treaties should be self-executing and when international law should have the force of U.S. law? Well, I, I think Una and I agree uh Boy, if it's not 100%, it's at least 95% on on exactly those uh, uh, points about uh, the status of international law as U.S. law. U.S. law is its own thing and to some extent incorporates international law and to some extent doesn't. And where international law supplies a norm contrary to U.S. law, as a matter of U.S. law, U.S. government officials have to follow the Constitution and laws of the United States and not the conflicting international law norm. On the point of self-executing versus non-self-executing treaties, I think UNA has put it about as clearly as it's possible to do. And you know, Law professors love these excruciating details, but it, but it really is sort of mind-numbingly complicated. Um, the short of it comes down to this. Treaties can be part of the law of the land. So the president, with the approval of two-thirds of the Senate, can make a treaty that becomes binding as U.S. law. Whether that treaty is, quote-unquote, self-executing is largely a question of what it says. Okay? Do the force of its provisions basically somehow enact a change in the U.S. domestic law regime? Do they enact something that changes U.S. law? More typically, more typically, a treaty is, establishes a framework of an international agreement, but then commits the respective sides to taking further action within their own constitutional processes for carrying it out. That would be what we professors refer to as a non-self-executing treaty. In other words, the treaty establishes a framework and essentially provides the framework for the exercise of legislative powers by Congress and the president. I don't know that there's a clear division among the Supreme Court justices about self-executing versus non-self-executing treaties. I think it would come down to what the treaty says in any particular case. And there have been Supreme Court cases where they're arguing about the meaning of the treaty and whether the treaty is one that has of its own force adopted a rule that's binding the United States, or whether the treaty is one that, that sort of creates the room for the policymakers in the United States, Congress and the president, to carry it into execution, and then what would be the status 
of those laws as a matter of U.S. law. Great. Well, with that note of agreement and, and lawyerly precision, I, I want to leave our audience with a, a spring in their step. So let me ask you to make very brief closing arguments. Ona, tell us uh, as, as crisply and concisely as you can why you think it is okay for U.S. courts to consult international law. Well, I think there are two reasons that it's okay for U.S. courts to look to foreign international law. First, uh, the courts do so uh, in cases where they're looking for uh, various kinds of evidence to inform their judgment. Uh, they look to a variety of different kinds of sources, and to suggest that foreign and international law shouldn't be one of those sources is to close ourselves off from the ideas of the world, and that would be a fundamental mistake. The second reason is that we have influence through the force of our own ideas abroad. And the more we close ourselves off from the world, the more we restrict our own influence on the world. Courts historically have looked to us for guidance, uh, for uh, informed opinions, for thoughtful uh, assessment of important uh, shared ideas and legal uh uh, conceptions. And the more that we close ourselves off from the rest of the world, the less willing the rest of the world is going to be to look to our example. So if we want to continue to lead by example, as we long have, we need to not close ourselves off, to be open to ideas from whatever their source. Uh, and among those sources that we might look to is the considered opinions um, and thoughtful ideas of those who work in the area of foreign and international law. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Mike, the last word is to you. Why do you think it is not okay, or do you think it is not okay, for U.S. courts to consult international law? I agree with Una 75%, roughly. Can't pretend to that sort of precision. It is okay to look at foreign law in order to increase one's own understanding as a comparative basis. There's nothing wrong with courts looking at foreign law, citing foreign law, being interested in um, what is going on in other countries. But fundamentally, the task is to keep your eye on the ball. When you're interpreting the meaning of a U.S. constitutional provision or of a U.S. statute, you're asking a question about what the framers enacted and what we the people adopted and ratified. You're asking a specific question about the meaning of a U.S. domestic law enactment, either a constitution or a statute. And there's a grave potential to be distracted from the task at hand if you enlarge the task and say, you know, our job is to shop around and look for what we think would be the best policy or the best rule coming from abroad. Once you've gone on that shopping trip, you've sort of left the task that you were set, uh, that you were set with, and that is to understand the meaning of the U.S. provisions at issue, which is fundamentally a question of U.S. law, U.S. politics, and U.S. policy. Thank you so much for that uh, closing statement, and thank you, Mike Paulson and Ona Hathaway, for an uh, unusually civil and always illuminating conversation about one of the most hotly contested questions of our time, should U.S. courts look to international law. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and edited by Jason Gregory. It was produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Joshua Weinberg and Daniele Evans. 
Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Send your questions, comments, and suggestions to editor at constitutioncenter.org, or send them to me, Jay Rosen, at constitutioncenter.org. I'd love to know what you think. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, a new podcast featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center, which is across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia with the best constitutional views in America. The most recent episode features a very lively constitutional conversation with U.S. Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, our new senatorial visiting scholar at the National Constitution Center, along with Senator Mike Lee. We the People is a member of the Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com backslash Panoply. And finally, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. And please join us again next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.